Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. Well, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, uh, all of you out there in Zoom land. Um, welcome to this webinar briefing uh, by the Institute of World Politics. I'm John Lovewell, Chairman of the Board of Trustees, and this is our very first inaugural webinar experiment. We're looking forward to doing more in the future with our distinguished faculty. For those of you who are new, IWP, the Institute of World Politics, is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have a doctoral program, five master's degrees, and 18 certificates of graduate study. If you're interested in learning more about us, please email us at info at iwp.edu. That's info at iwp.edu. And a member of our team will be in touch with you. For those of you who already know IWP, I wanna share a brief update. While we've been temporarily closed, excuse me, I'm gonna turn that off. Um, while we've been temporarily closed at our Washington DC and rest in Virginia campuses due to the coronavirus, business is continuing much as usual. Our classes are being held in an online format. Uh, our career seminars are being held via video conference and we are continuing to accept uh, applications for the fall semester. This afternoon, we will be interviewing Dr. John Lenchowski one of, the, one of America's foremost strategic thinkers and founder and president of IWP. As most of you know, Dr. Lenchowski founded the school 30 years ago after serving as President Reagan's chief expert on Soviet affairs. He was one of the principal architects of the Cold War strategy that ended the Cold War without firing a shot. For 30 years, he's been studying China and watching the gradual emergence of a, of a totalitarian regime with global ambitions. This afternoon, we'll be inter interviewing John about his observations concerning the rise of China, the current virus crisis, what lies ahead, and how the Institute is preparing leaders to meet the challenge of China. Towards the end of this 45 minutes, John will entertain questions which you may submit in the Q&A window. So John, here we go. Um, the, my very first question, for many years, starting even before the Reagan administration, the United States has pursued a policy of friendship with communist China. The U.S. promoted free trade and economic and technical assistance. We encouraged American companies to invest in China. We did all this in hopes that China might evolve into a prosperous and free society. When did you, as a China observer, first suspect that these policies might have disastrous consequences? Well, good afternoon, John, and good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Um, it is a, John, it's a really good question. I actually started getting concerned about this uh, in 1972 when President Richard Nixon and uh, Henry Kissinger uh, opened the window, so to speak, to China. Uh, they were doing this as a strategic maneuver to play the China card against the Soviet Union. It was a, a 19th century balance of power maneuver of playing one great power against another. However, the way it was done uh, ended up creating an unnecessary warmth uh, between the United States and the People's Republic of China that promoted what I considered to be a very serious uh, moral strategic confusion. This strategy ended up um, creating an image of bad communists, that the, the, those were the Soviets, the good communists, the, the, the communist Chinese. And this had, in my view, a serious uh, intellectually and psychologically disarming effect on American thinking, and it began a 40-year effort of overtly and covertly helping China to become a, what is now virtually a superpower and an enormous threat to uh, the United States 
in the world. Well, John, we've heard about uh, the human rights violations, um, the theft of intellectual property, the mercantilistic trade practices, the military buildup, the Belt and Road Initiative, Beijing's aggressive actions against its neighbors, and other transgressions against the rule of law and international agreements. What else has the Chinese regime been up to that most Americans don't know about? Well, actually, we have um, heard about only a fraction of these realities. Uh, for example, we've heard uh, concerning the, the nature of, of the Chinese regime, uh, we've heard a little bit about the concentration camps uh, where the Chinese have put the uh, Uyghur Muslims. But for years, China has operated a nationwide network of slave labor camps called the Lion. And virtually nobody, even well-educated people in this country, have heard that expression or realized that, that is the Chinese gulag archipelago. Uh, China has been engaging in, in systematic organ harvesting. Medical tourists can actually make an appointment in China to get a kidney or a liver, uh, and normally, in this country, if you need a, an organ transplant, it's the luck of the draw. Uh, but there you can actually make an appointment. And this is because the communist authorities will kill somebody, a, 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 one of the Uyghurs, one of the, of the Falun Gong practitioners, uh, Christians, uh, political dissidents, uh, and, and kill them for their organs. And only one country, to my knowledge, has prohibited medical tourism uh, for these purposes, and that is Israel. We ought seriously to think about doing it. Uh, a lot of people are unaware about the extent of Chinese espionage in this country. There are easily 50,000 Chinese intelligence collectors in this country. There could be, for all we know, many more than that. There are probably about 25,000 intelligence collectors uh, from China in Silicon Valley alone. The Chinese make 5,000 visits uh, a year to our national laboratories, where a visit constitutes a stay of, uh, of two weeks to two years. And they have been getting enormous amounts of our most sensitive technology and scientific advances. Chinese intelligence has stolen the background investigation files of 21 million Americans with security clearances. There's a lot of dirt in those uh, background files, uh, and it is an intelligence nightmare for the United States, the full implications of which have not yet been realized. The Chinese have been collecting massive data on individual Americans, including having stolen 78 million medical records from the Anthem medical insurance system, it collects the DNA of American uh, citizens through its ownership of one of those ancestry companies that tells you whether you have Neanderthal blood in your background. <laughs> uh, it um, has conducted laser tests against our satellites to try to blind them. Uh, it has built the underground Great Wall, which is a network of 3,000 miles of tunnels through which you can drive a truck that conceals, that, 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 uh, that, that drags behind it a road mobile ICBM launcher with nuclear weapons. The Chinese are concealing their nuclear weapon, their land-based nuclear weapons in this collection of tunnels. 3,000 miles is only an estimate. Maybe it's only 1,000 miles, but it is a strategic project of immense magnitude. Some 95% of the fentanyl uh, in the United States is sent here by China in full recognition of its deadly effects. Uh, one could say that the Chinese are not just letting this happen, they are probably doing this on purpose. Chinese companies and elites have bought up massive quantities of US real estate. We have permitted China to list some 700 companies on our stock, bond, and capital markets. This means that US uh, investors, including retirement plans, 
are financing the very companies that are making the weapons that are targeted against our armed forces and that develop technologies that enable China to create an Orwellian totalitarian state uh, to control the Chinese population. The Chinese, another fact that people don't know, uh, or at least many people around the country don't know, uh, the Chinese propaganda ministry pays millions of dollars a year to our major uh, media, uh, to, to our, our elite newspapers, the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. And um, most of the time, these newspapers do not report strategic developments, particularly Chinese military developments that are inimical to the security interests of the United States. Chinese strategy has been to enrich many leaders of the US business community uh, to neutralize any opposition they might otherwise make to Chinese policies. And another thing that uh, many people are unaware of is that an unseemly number of American secretaries of state, defense, uh, uh, former American secretaries of state and defense, and even directors of central intelligence have been directly or indirectly on Beijing's payroll and have consistently downplayed any potential threat from communist China. There are front organizations uh, of the communist Chinese intelligence that have subsidized and, and done joint projects with many famous blue chip American think tanks and academic institutions. China has interfered in our elections in ways that are even more effective and damaging than Russia's interference. They have contributed directly to the campaigns of American politicians. They have influence in American academia and in Hollywood, uh, about which a lot can be said. And the result is that you have those institutions upon which uh, our citizens depend for honest reporting and analysis about Chinese strategic developments have been silenced or corrupted. And so, uh, and then on top of all of this, let's just remember that the Chinese communist authorities tell their cadres and tell their armed forces that America is their enemy. Well, John, that's just a stunning list of, uh, of facts that many of our listeners may not have heard about in the past. It's just amazing to me what the, the range of things that have been going on. Um, the question I have is why, why have our leaders and companies turned a blind eye to this for so long, and at least until recently? Well, um, I think that uh, uh, too many of them uh, have a vested interest in continuing profitable and comfortable arrangements with China. So what you have are, are business, media, academic, and political leaders uh, who have such vested interests are all censoring themselves. Uh, the result is that China, in many respects, effectively owns them. Uh, look at the behavior of some major American corporations who have had to learn to parrot Beijing's party line when it comes to how they uh, treat Taiwan, for example, and so on and so forth. They're practicing learning how to live under totalitarianism. And so uh, when China begins to own enough of us, uh, well, you can call that checkmate. It is conquest without war. And this is what Beijing's objective is. In the, in the, in the case of others who are not owned by China, uh, there has been pandemic wishful thinking about reform in China. Now, too many of our experts on China, many of whom have taken subsidized paid junkets to China thanks to the, the good offices of the Chinese Communist Party and its front organizations, uh, as well as corporate and political leaders in this country, have, um, uh, have indulged in a fantasy that the Communist Party would voluntarily cease to be what it is and give up its power, that, that somehow they would reform, so to speak. Uh, all of this, in my view, is a complete failure to, to understand how communist systems work. And I could just say here that for all of the economic policies that have permitted private interests to exist and in, chi in China and serve the party's interests, 
there is no difference in principle between those policies and Lenin's new economic policy of the 1920s. Wow. Um, so the world, we've got this, this uh, coronavirus pandemic uh, that we're all suffering through right now, which by all accounts originated in China. What does the way the Chinese Party, uh, Communist Party has dealt with the virus uh, pandemic say about the regime? Well, uh, I think people's eyes are being open about the nature of this regime because of this current situation. Now, many of you do know that uh, the Chinese Communist Party has suppressed information about the origin of the virus. Uh, medical professionals in Wuhan were silenced. American journalists were expelled from the country. Offers of US uh, scientific uh, consultation and assistance in determining the origin of the virus and its nature were refused by the regime. Then the, the Communist Party lied about the virus's method of transmission when it knew it, what that method was very well. Um, and and uh, it didn't reveal this knowledge until the virus, until they really let the virus escape uh, to the rest of the world. It uh, promulgated massive disinformation about, uh, uh, about its source, and, as well as distorting the numbers of people afflicted and killed by the virus. Uh, it then accused the U.S. Army of bringing the virus to China. And now we've just learned yesterday that, the, that officials from the U.S. Embassy uh, in, in Beijing in, 1918, in, in 2018 um, warned about sloppy behavior uh, and lack of proper standards in the, in the handling of dangerous pathogens in this notorious biological library, uh, laboratory in Wuhan. And uh, there has been uh, not unreasonable speculation that the virus leaked out of that laboratory due to sloppy practices. Well, you know, there's no um, solid evidence that this took place, uh, but uh, serious people in our intelligence community are looking into this. And, uh, but then when you look at how the, uh, the Chinese communist regime behaved, it engaged in what can only reasonably be called uh, cover-up type behavior, as if something that was done wrong needed to be covered up. Well, you know, what is China doing here? What is the, what is the communist regime doing? Well, their primary objective is their internal security. Uh, and this means essentially, and a huge part of that internal security, the security of the regime is to control the narrative and to maintain a monopoly of information and communication. And there is even speculation, I don't know that there's any evidence about it, but it's not unreasonable speculation that if China was going to suffer uh, economically from this virus, uh, it probably may have, it very likely could have made a decision that it was go not going to suffer alone, which is why uh, it is not unreasonable to speculate that the regime permitted this uh, virus to leave its borders as easily as it did. Well, uh, I think you started to answer this question already, but I'm going to uh, ask you to fill the to speak further to it, but um, I certainly we're all much more aware just in the last few months of, of some of the things that China's capable of doing and has been doing. But since 2016, when uh, President Trump was elected, much more attention has been placed on the problems with China. Do you think we're turning, the United States is turning a corner in our relationship? Well, John, I, yes, I do. You know, as a matter of fact, as as terrible as this virus has been for the uh, uh, for the health of so many people around the world and the, uh, and the economic condition here in our country and elsewhere, uh, there is a certain silver lining to this episode. 
And that is that when the American people are unaware of various types of realities that represent a serious threat uh, to our nation's security, uh, they simply cannot do what is necessary to be done to maximize our defenses. But when we know the truth, the American people and our elected representatives will do the right thing and take the necessary steps to protect our vital national interests. That awareness had not really been there because of the consistent failure of our national leaders to tell the truth about communist China. Uh, the truth about national security threats is our most powerful weapon. And this administration, whatever you may think about it, has told more truth about communist China than the last several administrations combined. And so uh, the, the administration's concerns uh, on, you know, politics, uh, you know, political, economic, strategic, military concerns about China have been bolstered by the way, in the public eye, by the way the, the regime has handled this epidemic. This has been a wake-up call, and as a result, we're now seeing legislation of the kind that we should have seen many years ago. Uh, there is a bill now to end our incredible dependence upon uh, China for uh, most of our pharmaceuticals. Uh, we are seriously exploring how to end our dependence on Chinese supply chains for our uh, defense systems and for the uh, information uh, technology upon which those systems depend. And, and this is gonna mean nothing less than a renaissance of our defense industrial base. Boy, that's, that's really something. Um, uh, you know, I know you were one of the leading strategists for President Reagan during the Cold War against the Soviet Union. And you said to me, there are many similarities between Soviet communism and Chinese communism that your students study at the Institute. Why do you study these things? And, and what are some of the similarities between Soviet and Chinese communism? Well, I think it is absolutely essential that people involved in the most sensitive functions of our government, which is where our students either are currently working or are headed towards, um, have, to, uh, have to understand the, uh, the DNA of totalitarian regimes that tend to be hostile to American and other kinds of uh, democratic countries. Um, for years, uh, you know, sinologists and, and many sinologists and people doing business with China told me and other uh, experts on communism that China was, was no longer communist. And, uh, and that Deng Xiaoping's economic reforms prove it and that nobody believed in the ideology anymore. Well, you know, this was a view that actually many Sovietologists, a, var a variant of this view was entertained by many Sovietologists and media pundits during the last decade of the, of the Soviet Union's existence. And, and to me, it, uh, what is noteworthy about this is, is a reflection of what I consider to be the number one disinformation and strategic deception theme of both of these regimes. And that theme is, we are no longer communist anymore, and therefore you all don't have to worry about it. So when you look at similarities between these regimes, there's so many of them, there are too many to list here. But let me just go over a couple that I think are of, 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 of really strategic importance. Both systems attempt to exercise as much control over society as necessary to prevent any independent organization from becoming a front for resistance to the regime. The central fact of political life in both the USSR and communist China is the, the, the party's fear of its own people, precisely because the communist party in both of those countries ruled and rule and currently rule um, uh, in, in, in a way without the consent of the government. 
These are illegitimate regimes. So both of them fear their own people. They therefore need massive internal security systems. And both use a, some variant of Marxist-Leninist ideology, which is manipulated as, and, and, and molded as necessary by the Communist Party to legitimize themselves in power. Both use the ideology and control of the narrative uh, to ensure enforced conformity with party norms. Um, the ideology is the standard against which deviationism is measured. It's the drum beating for soldiers marching. Uh, everybody in the court has to say that the naked emperor is wearing beautiful clothes, and they do so out of fear or loyalty. All of this is enforced by the party state's monopoly of information and communications. And when you combine this monopoly with the pervasive system of informants, the atmosphere of fear, uh, this, is, this is what creates the, the totalitarian character of both the Soviet Union and communist China. And finally, let's just remember that both these countries see and saw the United States as an enemy because we represent democracy, which is a mortal threat to Communist Party rule. Um, that's very sobering. Uh, and, but, but you uh, have raised one thing, one issue I think we should point out, and that is any problem we have is with the Chinese Communist Party, not so much with the Chinese people at all. Uh, exactly. And I think there's only like, what, 85, 90,000 members of the Chinese Communist Party in a, in a country of 1.3 or 4 billion people? Actually, John, there are, there, is, there are millions of Chinese Communist Party members. Oh, really? Okay. Yes, there are millions. I don't know what the exact number is, but it's, it's a huge it's a big number. Big number, okay. Um, so... At the graduate school, you founded the Institute of World Politics. Um, you're educating leaders for the State Department, uh, the military, the intelligence community, and other sensitive leadership positions. What skills and knowledge must they possess to deal with a threat like the Chinese Communist Party? Well, I think it's essential that they have to understand, as I mentioned before, the nature of totalitarian regimes. You have to understand their DNA, because the nature of regimes uh, tells you much about what kind of behavior you can expect from them. You have to understand their histories, and it's particularly important to understand the methods of statecraft that they have perfected and that they use against us. And many of these methods are those that exceed the bounds of what is diplomatically acceptable, which is why they both engage in massive disinformation, active measures, strategic deception, uh, all sorts of these types of activities. Now this, to understand all of that requires a clinical realism about uh, you know, uh, the unpleasant nature of these regimes and how they behave. <laughs> and in order to see reality correctly, it's important that you should understand what the impediments to reality are. And this is something that we teach our students. And those impediments include mirror imaging, which means looking at others as if they're just like us, various forms of utopianism, foreign propaganda and disinformation, which distorts uh, our perceptions. And then there are the moral impediments, uh, which include wishful thinking, and willful blindness, where people just can't stand to look at something and admit that there is something as threatening as it may be. Then it's important that our students and everybody in these positions in government should understand the history of American foreign policy and how we have both succeeded and failed in addressing the major national security threats over the years. And then it's really important that we have to know about all the different arts of statecraft, which is what we specialize in teaching at IWP. These are the instruments of national power, uh, military, diplomatic, public diplomacy, cultural diplomacy, strategic influence, political warfare, intelligence, counterintelligence, economic strategy, uh, all of these different 
instruments in the larger orchestra of our national strategy. And, and many of these are neglected by our universities and our government agencies, which is why we're in business teaching these things. Um, are you seeing some uh, uh, positive impact by your alumni in, in some of these national security uh, forums and places? As a matter of fact, tremendous impact. Um, we have the most serious program, academic program and professional program in counterintelligence in the nation. And, uh, and we have sent uh, our alums into many of the, uh, you know, many of the relevant agencies in our intelligence and counterintelligence community. Uh, some of, and, and, and some of these alums uh, have been winning uh, some of the highest awards that their agencies give out for uh, truly strategic uh, strides forward in our efforts to stop Chinese espionage uh, and, and even influence operations. So there's some cause for optimism. Um, yes. I'm, I'm starting to get some questions from our audience, John. Um, uh, the first one comes from Robert Alberts who asks, what is, the what is the first U.S. policy change you would make toward China? Well, um, I think there's an enormous amount that has to be done. I think that um, bolstering our counterintelligence efforts uh, may be one of the most important uh, because we are vastly outgunned in the uh, uh, in, in, in this field. Uh, I would restrict the number of visas that we give out to people who we would be suspecting uh, as, as intelligence collectors. Uh, that includes graduate students in science, technology, and engineering. I would uh, restrict the visits of Chinese businessmen tourists who are trying to steal our technology. I would restrict our, our uh, Chinese visits to our national laboratories. Uh, I, would, um, I would prevent uh, American lawyers from teaching Chinese intelligence collectors how to circumvent U.S. export control laws. Hmm. Uh, I would restrict uh, Chinese purchases uh, of our companies, stocks, educational institutions, and other assets. Um, so counterintelligence is, is, is a, a, huge, uh, a huge part of all of this. But, but this is just a defensive measure, uh, but there are, you know, uh, there, there are other important defensive measures we can be taking. We can re restrict uh, China's access to our capital markets so that we can stop financing the Chinese military buildup and financing the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, you know, we can, uh, uh, we should be, another element of counterintelligence is counter-influence operations. And here I would uh, uh, prohibit Chinese advertising in the US uh, media, both in the traditional media and in our social media until such time as we enjoy reciprocal rights uh, to advertise uh, and engage in, in, in uh, political influence inside China. Uh, reciprocity is something that has been missing from U.S. policy towards China, and uh, it, it is a concept that under Secretary Pompeo uh, is being implemented in a number of different ways. Um. Very good. I have another question um, that came through Facebook. I don't know who the author is, but the question is, is COVID-19 an act of war from China? Um, I don't know that we know that yet. Um, I think that the Chinese have taken uh, a lot of actions that I consider to be aggressive. I think that, uh, you know, a, a country that has the kind of totalitarian control over its people that China has, that is capable of, of developing social credit scores uh, for its individual citizens, 
darn well knows who's making fentanyl and who is sending it to the United States. And we have had tens of thousands of people die every year from fentanyl overdoses that come directly from China. And I consider that to be an act of an aggression against the United States. Um, the, the, uh, this is a whole field that our national security community has, uh, has disregarded for decades. During the Cold War, we, um, we completely turned a blind eye towards communist bloc involvement in international narcotics trafficking. And what happened there was that the general secretary of the Soviet Communist Party, Nikita Khrushchev, was so impressed with communist Chinese use of narcotics as a weapon of war in the Korean War that he wanted to replicate that program, which he did by tasking the satellite countries in the communist orbit uh, to, uh, to engage in, in the promotion of, of narcotics in the West, both to pickle the brains of American youth and Western youth, to earn lots of money and to develop dossiers on corrupt government officials who were involved in the narcotics trade so that they could be manipulated for intelligence and political influence purposes. Uh, that's just one thing. Uh, we'll, there, we need a lot more evidence about this virus to see if this was an act of aggression against us. I, I think one likely scenario could be that it was an accident to begin with, but it became a weapon after it happened. Very possible. Yeah. Uh, here's another question coming through Facebook. Why do you think that our mainstream foreign policy elites seem so immune to recognizing the existential threats represented by leftist totalitarian regime, be it the Soviet Union or Putin Russia, agricultural reformer Fidel's, uh, Fidel's Cuba, or Mao's police state in China? Well, uh, I think that um, there are simply, you know, there are, you know, I've, I've touched on this already. Um, you know, I think that during the Cold War, for example, uh, there was residual ideological sympathy with many, amongst many people in our intellectual elites. Um, they basically recognized that communists were simply liberals in a hurry. Uh, and then uh, there are, uh, uh, you know, there are those who, um, who had an attitude that um, the Soviet Union, for example, was a permanent feature of the international geopolitical landscape. And, um, and that so long it was, as it was gonna be there permanently, that we had to reconcile ourselves to this fact and that therefore uh, we had to learn to get along with it. Well, you know, there was a big, there was a big uh, uh, divide in, in the uh, Soviet uh, experts community uh, amongst those, between those who thought it was permanent and those, and I, in, in, in the, the, the latter, in, in, in another school in which uh, I considered myself a member, uh, that uh, the, the, the communist system was one that was contrary, that was, um, contrary enough to human nature that it, and it had enough internal contradictions that it eventually had to collapse. And that uh, there was never going to be true peace between us and the Soviet Union, for example, until um, the regime could have peace with its own people. This was a lesson taught to us by the great Soviet scientist and inventor of the Soviet H-bomb, uh, Andrei Sakharov. Mm -hmm. that there would be no peace until the Soviets respected the human rights of their own people. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, there were many people who, thinking that the Soviet Union was a permanent feature, uh, came to the conclusion that we simply had to work on addressing the symptoms of tension, like arms, and therefore all the arms control agreements, uh, whereas others like me 
were involved in trying to eliminate the causes of tension, which were, which in the case of the Soviet Union was the very nature of its regime. They, they, you, know, you can't have a reduction of tensions without a reduction of political concerns. And our concerns about the Soviet Union were the nature of its internal totalitarianism and its external aggression and subversion. Um, I've got several more questions coming through, John. Uh, this one from uh, our, uh, from Kurt Klum, one, one of our current students, I believe. Uh, what elements need to be gathered to spur the creation of a national strategy for China similar to President Reagan's NSC 68 for the Soviet Union? Uh, and Oh, then there's a co correction to the question. What elements need to be gathered to spur the creation of a national strategy for China similar to President Reagan's NSDD 75 and Eisenhower's NSC 68? Yes. Kurt, well, Kurt, we, Kurt, we should say is uh, with the State Department. Is that right? Well, Kurt is, is with the Department of Justice, and uh, and and he's one of our doctoral students, and uh, and uh, we are absolutely delighted to have him in our in our midst. Um, I think the answer to that is to set out uh, to set forth an outline of each of the different instruments of statecraft. And uh, where you set forth the military instrument and you say, well, this is what we must do. We have to build a much bigger Navy because the, uh, the Chinese Navy is uh, now becoming a blue water Navy and it is getting bigger than ours if it isn't already. Uh, we need to develop space weapons because China uh, has, uh, is exceeding us in uh, the development of those kinds of weapons and has and may very well have the capability of blinding our satellites and our command control and communications uh, dependence upon them. Uh, so all the different military developments, that's point uh, Roman numeral one, then go to the economic ones and then figure out, uh, you know, how, how to stop Chinese mercantilistic trade practices, which this administration has been doing a very good job of, of, uh, of, of implementing. Uh, and uh, uh, it, it's then we have to work more intensively on, on intelligence and counterintelligence, then we have to work on, on uh, uh, public diplomacy and strategic influence, for example. Uh, and, and here is where perhaps we should be taking the offensive. Most of the things I've mentioned thus far, counterintelligence, military, economic, all of these different things are, are effectively defensive measures. But, you know, the Chinese have been conducting a cold war against us now for a very long time, for, uh, for decades. And uh, we are only beginning to wake up to this fact. And yet we don't do almost anything that can be considered cold war reciprocity. And I believe there are things that we can do, particularly to help break the information monopoly and communications monopoly by the Chinese regime. Uh, and here is where we need to be connecting with the Chinese people, because the Chinese people are our allies in all of this, because the problem here is not the Chinese people. The problem is the communist regime that is both oppressing them and uh, engaging in its global imperialist uh, efforts and, and attempts to neutralize and effectively own the United States. And, and so we need to communicate with those people. We need to enable them to communicate with each other. We need to be broadcasting to them in every, um, you know, through multimedia, uh, radio, television, internet, we should be breaking down the, uh, uh, the great firewall. Uh, there are all sorts of, uh, all sorts of different elements of, of such a policy, but, but basically that's what the outline needs to look like. Look at all of the different instruments of statecraft and then develop appropriate policies uh, that are, you know, most of which are defensive, but there are the offensive ones that have everything to do with telling the truth to the world, competing in the world, in the realm of ideas and ideals, 
we still represent uh, freedom, uh, democratic republicanism, representative government, the rule of law, human rights. This is something that all Americans uh, can, can ha have a consensus about and we should be proud of this polit rare political system that we have and we have uh, a, a, a link with people all around the world who uh, admire those ideals and, uh, and are disappointed in us only when they see us not uh, living up to those ideals in a way that they hope we would. This is a, a main theme I've heard you speak about before, Dr. Lenchowski, and uh, I've heard you refer to it as uh, using grand strategy, hard and soft power to win without war, win without yes. war. And yes. I think that's a, a, a great theme um, uh, for this talk. Um, it's, we're coming up against 45 minutes, but I still have a number of questions. If you're willing to stick around, I, uh, we, but, but let me just mention, um, for those of you who have to sign off, um, I, I want to thank John for participating in this webinar. We're going to be uh, planning uh, a few additional events in the future, which you'll be hearing about. Uh, in the meantime, if you're interested in supporting the Institute of World Politics or applying to our graduate program, please go to iwp.edu. That's iwp.edu. So now I'm going to uh, uh, ask you a few more questions. Um, uh, Erickson Huertes, I believe, I hope I said that properly, is asking, what are the long-term consequences of China extending its economic, military, and political influence in the Western Hemisphere? Well, that's a very, uh, a very good question. Um, we have been neglecting uh, all of those friendly countries in our own hemisphere. Um, we've been focusing way too much. Uh, not that the focus has been completely misplaced, but um, we've been focusing way too much on these wars that we've been conducting in the Middle East and South and Know, Afghanistan. Uh, uh, we have been worried about terrorism uh, and we have been sort of sitting on the sidelines as the Chinese have systematically been building up their influence uh, throughout the world and amazingly to a remarkable degree in our own hemisphere. Um, I think that uh, one of the great one of the things that we should be doing, because I believe that right now uh, China is trying to exploit uh, the, the current uh, economic uh, downturn in the Western world, and the fact that we're not thinking much about any kind of assistance to, uh, uh, you know, to developing countries and, and uh, and, we, and, and we've been neglecting, uh, in my view, uh, our whole hemisphere to such an extent that there's a, a kind of a, a, a strategic vacuum that China has tried to fill. And I think one of the most important things that we can be doing is alerting our friends and particularly our neighbors in, in the Western hemisphere uh, that it is illusory to be depending upon uh, Chinese financing of infrastructure projects uh, of the kind that they've been doing that, that has been the main salient of the Belt and Road Initiative. Uh, they're doing this in our hemisphere precisely in order to isolate us uh, and to neutralize uh, friendly uh, countries uh, who are our neighbors. And so I think that we need to be uh, much more intensively diplomatically engaged uh, and, and, and we need to be informing people uh, around the world about what Chinese strategy is because it is ultimately not serving those countries' interests. Uh, you know, they, they become too indebted to China and then when they can't pay their debts, the Chinese take over uh, the assets. And we have let 
For example, China controlled both ends of the Panama Canal, uh, which I think was a strategic disaster. And, and the Chinese, of course, have been developing and have developed a demographic and infrastructural presence at just about every major strategic naval choke point in the world uh, and, and have done so for many years. Uh, and this is part of a global strategy that could have vast military strategic implications if there ever were to be the outbreak of war. Um, another question comes from Merrick. I'm going to try to pronounce this correctly, Michalski. Um, and the question is, can you elaborate on the trade-off between Western democracy versus communist discipline and between quarterly capitalism versus quarter century communist planning? Uh, <laughs> well, that, that is a, a very interesting question because uh, communist regimes uh, like the Chinese have a uh, have a, a distinct strategic advantage over uh, democratic republics like ours. Uh, and that is that they are capable of conducting very long-term strategies uh, consistently. Uh, Winston Churchill, for example, in The Gathering Storm, uh, said that, you know, it was the purpose of his uh, books, the, the six-volume history of the Second World War, it was his purpose to show how easily that war could have been prevented. And in the process of showing this, he, he said uh, he, he, he would like to show how uh, democracies seem incapable of conducting a consistent policy for anything more than five years at a time. And, and uh, then he said that uh, he wanted to show how, in that case, the malice, uh, that the, 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 uh, the weakness of the virtuous uh, was more influential than the malice of the wicked. And he concluded that little paragraph by saying, uh, he, he wanted to show how, um, the desire for the quiet life and to take the middle course can lead direct to the bullseye of disaster. Now, I think that, um, you know, we have a very short-term uh, mentality in, 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 in the United States. And I think that something perhaps, I don't know uh, what could be done when it, when it comes to how we, um, measure the success of our corporations. Uh, but when, uh, when American companies are thinking about the quarterly report, it is a very short-term horizon, uh, and which is why many privately held companies that are not worried about appeasing their investors uh, every quarter with, uh, with good news every quarter can take a longer-term uh, strategy uh, and, and for the recapitalization of their companies uh, and, and to maintain maximum competitiveness. And um, so I think that there are simply certain structural uh, impediments uh, to the way our system works, and we have to learn how to, to manage that. Uh, I would prefer to have the weaknesses of our system, system than to have the discipline and the strategic advantages uh, that totalitarianism gives you. Well, I'm going to give you one more question and then we'll sign off. Um, uh, how would, this came through Facebook, how would Dr. Lenchowski characterize or define the PRC communist economic and social system today? Meaning, does it still more closely resemble a Marxist-Leninist -Lenin system, a Marxist-Leninist system plus capitalist hybrid or otherwise? And, P, and please feel free to elaborate. <laughs> Thank you. Um, you know, the, one of the great 19th century uh, revolutionaries, I think it may have been Nechayev, um, said that if it is necessary to become a monarchist, uh, to defeat the monarchy, 
then that's what one must do. So uh, the fact of the matter is that the, the Chinese regime continues to need and utilize the, it, its own variant of Marxist-Leninist ideology as its instrument of, of, of the legitimization of state authority. Um, the, uh, how many people believe in, in all of this ideology? Uh, well, you know, a Marxist-Leninist system can continue to be one without people having to believe in all the aspects of the ideology. Um, but there are many aspects of, of Marxism-Leninism as originally articulated by Marx, uh, Engels, Lenin, and, and, and some of their friends, uh, insofar as there's a fundamental uh, materialist uh, foundation for everything that they do. Uh, and there is, there, there is the complete rejection of a logocentric view of the world, uh, which is why uh, the, the Chinese regime uh, is, is so hostile to religion uh, and looks upon religion as a, a serious threat. Um, it, uh, uh, it uses this ideology as an, as an essential element of the internal security system of the state. It is, I said a little earlier, it, is the, it sets the standard against which deviationism is measured. And so it almost doesn't matter what some of the precise doctrines are, uh, so long as they retain the, the, the fundamental uh, materialist uh, core of, uh, of what this ideology is all about. Uh, let's remember the ideology is, is not only a theory of history, a theory of knowledge, uh, a theory of economy, uh, a, a theory of politics, a theory of, of society, and so on. It is an ideology of how to use power. And, and the, the, the way Beijing, the, the Communist Party, uses power is according to a classic Leninist model. And it enforces party discipline. And the one fascinating thing which where you can say there is a little distinction between the, uh, the way uh, Beijing runs things and the way the Soviets ran things is that um, it, uh, the Soviets didn't particularly like their uh, you know, top officials or any of their cadres uh, developing forms of self-interest that were at variance with the party's interest. And one of the reasons why the Soviet system collapsed was because uh, the party started getting corrupt. It started, uh, it, it was involved in the underground economy, it was taking bribes from the underground uh, entrepreneurs. <clears throat> uh, it started investing in the underground economy uh, and, and therefore there was a diminution in what the Soviets called partinost, which means party-mindedness. Um, and so first Andropov and then Gorbachev attempted to engage in, in massive anti-corruption efforts to, to do an ideological purification campaign of the party. Uh, it was the corruption of the party that was one of the many reasons for the the, the collapse of the Soviet system. The Chinese communists have learned from this and they decided, well, this is something that seems to be uh, unavoidable. So we're going to make it so that our cadres can get rich uh, through uh, a crony capitalist type of system, a fascistic type of a model, uh, but we will permit it so long as they maintain their party mindedness on all other in all other aspects. And so, you know, who, who's getting rich over there? It is the party members, the party elite, uh, the members of the People's Liberation Army. And so this is simply a modification 
of, of, of the Soviet system where they've learned to avoid uh, one of the terrible mistakes that uh, afflicted uh, the health of, of the Soviet Communist Party. So uh, I, I believe that uh, uh, they, they have established a, a very intelligent, a very clever method of survival by harassing people's self-interest in a way that ultimately doesn't harm the overall party interest. Well, I think we're running out of time, John. We have more questions. I'm sorry we can't answer them all, but uh, I think this has been a, a pretty good launch of our webinar series. And uh, uh, I just thank you. And I thank all of the uh, folks who listened in. I hope you found this to be of value. And we look forward to uh, doing this again in the near future. Thanks so much. Bye now. Bye-bye.